and welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? The same thing that's going on every week, Pinky. We're just here trying to give the people what they want. <laughs> there you go. I love I love that reference yeah. there. There you the go. Part of the 1990s Nickelodeon, Pinky in the Brain is near and dear to your heart. That's that's right. Giving our way our age there. So, all right. You know what else I love is not only 1990s cartoons, but once we grew out of that phase is learning and growing in whatever thing I was interested in. But I always was frustrated, especially in the 2000s and 90s when we were going, you know what? It was really freaking hard to get a hold of learning material, right? Yeah. Oh, dude, brutal. You, the, the internet was, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go around on message boards looking for stuff. And then as we were getting into coaching, like you'd scour the internet for these random books or bookshops. I remember, gosh, so many random old school running books I'd, I'd pick up at half price books, right? Or some like local indie old school used book sh- store. And you're oh, like, you oh. Like the track techniques. Yep. Oh, track man, I bought so many track techniques. Like I went back through them. I go, these are gold mines, but it's like they're kind of like half cocked because it's like they're just like really high level general introductions. They don't go deep. They kind of just like say, hey, you should think about it like this. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. And then what? Like I always was struggling like with and then what? Like after you yeah. got introduced to an idea, that's the key part of learning, right? Is that connection building. Yeah, exactly. No, that's it. I was always left being like excited, but I'm like, how do I go deeper? And you couldn't. (laughs) So that is why John and I developed the Scholar Program, which started out as a collection of let's go really deep and find the deepest stuff that we could have, but then evolved to answer the question that John just said there, not only deep, but what is the connection? How do we utilize this? How do we apply this in the real world? And this is why we expanded to include the clubhouse, which allows you to discuss things and, you know, figure out, try different things and look at implementing it. So, yeah, it's about it's a really it's super simple problem and answers, right? Like there's a lot of common problems in coaching that have been solved before. And, you know, uh, you know, a, a member of the clubhouse succinctly put it, it's like, we should know what's going on in history. We should look to the past. Some of it is total junk and some of it's total gold. And deciphering those learnings are really important because you need to know the junk, which doesn't work at all, versus the gold, which worked really well and might have been forgotten. And we examined all that in the website, in the courses. But then we go deep, 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 deep in the clubhouse where it's like people from all over the world are just talking with each other about how to solve these common problems that just keep presenting themselves over and over and over again in coaching. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you're a clubhouse member, you just go ask the question and you have like six or seven people literally like within hours be like, yeah, hey, here's how I've solved it. Or here's what I thought about. Here's what I is. A really good example was a member asked about how to prep their runners for the downhill running course in Boston. And they asked Steve and I, right? It was during the holidays, like right after Christmas. We didn't get around to it. You know, a week later, I finally like go in and like log back online. 
70 responses <laughs> before <laughs> I actually said, here's how I would solve it. <laughs> I don't even think you would responded at all, Steve. It was just like the amount of awesome over information and solution was overwhelmingly rad. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go this story. I've told it before, but this tells you the evolution and the importance of this. In 2011, I'm working for some random company that you might know. Um, one of our runners, world-class marathoner, is training for the Boston Marathon. And John was out, out in this area at this time. We were, this is where we, be, we became friends. One of the Boston, uh, you know, world's best runners training for Boston. Well, the coach at the time is like, oh, Boston Marathon. It's got some downhills. How do we prepare for that? You know what he did? Here's what he did. He went on Let's Run and looked for the answer. <laughs> a world-class coach at a world-class company, supposed, and <laughs> looking for the answer on a Let's Run message board. Let's board. Whoa. We're providing the solution. You don't have to go to Let's Run and see what random trolls who are anonymous tell you to do to prepare for Boston. You've got, as you said, 70 replies from coaches who are actually coaching who actually have success and skin in the game, who are saying, here's some ideas. And guess what? You get to go back and forth. Why do you think about this? Why do you think this prep works? All that stuff. And that dialogue is where learning occurs. So this is why we created it, right? So you don't have to be like that world-class coach, you know, go on, let's run, and then literally do what they they kind of say. You get to have that dialogue and understanding. Yeah, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, and it's a, a river and a f stream of information. And I just I love it to, to near and dear. Like uh, it's like I think we're a year and a half into it. So, and every year it's like we try to provide different cool things. Like you know, we did the wickets for running course in the um, spring. Uh, you know, I did inside a high school track season where I daily uploaded the workouts for my. Um, high school track team I'm working with the distance uh, middle distance runners last spring we this is where flux training originated the concepts and paradigms of that and then the exciting thing is like this coming spring what we're going to be doing scholar program only is essentially um, strength and conditioning for distance runners 101 like super simplified super streamlined just do these exercises do them over and over again get really good at this and don't have to think too much about all these different things to do. Here's the format. You know, uh, there'll be videos and such. Like I'm, you know, scholars want it. I asked them, hey, do, would you guys like this? They go, please give it to me. Because again, strength, things, strength training is one of those things we all know we should do as runners, but we don't know what to do. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It really doesn't. And unfortunately, there's a lot of complexity out there in that world versus like, hey, our goal is to make it simple and effective. Simple and effective. Let's translate all the complexity to simple and effective. And first dibs goes in the scholar program where you get to essentially put this into practice right away with someone who's been doing it for years successfully and just you don't have to overthink it. And we're that's why we're here. That's right. And speaking of not overthinking it, that's what we're going to go with today. Mm -hmm. Our topic, starting from scratch, how to grow a successful program from the ground up. You know, this is this is a good question because this is one of the hardest things to do. And, and to set the stage, here's what we're going to say is, you know, 
you take over a new high school or college, maybe it's starting a program from the very beginning, or you take over, you know, I remember when, when I got to Houston, we had like, I don't know, something like five girls total uh, on the team. And you're sitting there being like, all right, like, we don't even have a full team. We oh, gotta, we gotta had, make this I work. Three guys total at Portland state when I first showed up in 2000, you know, 12, <laughs> three guys and now look at portland state's distance program it's crushing it's so awesome to see like but literally i was like going around campus being like can you run 10 miles without stopping yeah do you want to join the cross-country team (laughs) oh no we did the same we did the same because you know what i i didn't tell you there is in that first year we had we had three girls get pregnant (laughs) oh jeez so we were uh, we were on the the numbers side, very very low. So I did the same thing, man. I went around campus. I put a thing in the campus like newspaper or whatever. You know, do you like? Do you enjoy running? Come on out. You see someone running around campus? It's like stop the car, <laughs> like go run over to them. Like, are you a student here? Like, do you like running? Great. And we we got a couple, you know, a couple ladies who. Stuck, stuck it out and went on the team after, uh, after sh- you know, getting pulled off campus. Yeah, I hang my hat on. Um, I recruited a guy out of a burrito shop who was behind the counter making burritos on looks only. And the guy ended up becoming the school record holder at the time in the indoor 3000 meter for us a year later. I there said, you go. You look like you're active. Would you like to be on the track team? And the dude was like, yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be dope. I said, great. Come on out. A year later. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So, so this gets us to the first point. I think of if you're starting from scratch, it's a like numbers matter, right? Yeah. Because you, you can't have a team of three people. So you need the numbers. And this is a delicate balance where at, at first you're kind of desperate and you're taking everybody and all this. And sometimes people worry like, well, if I take everybody, what's their standard going to be? And it's like, you're starting from scratch. There is no standard, <laughs> right? Yeah. You, just need, you need blood and bodies. Period. You need bodies. Yeah. And this is where high school coaches know this, right? You take over the program. And what do high school coaches do? They scour the halls. They go to gym class. They watch the... The kids run around the track or walk around the track. They see if anybody's running. They see who gets cut from soccer or basketball or what or swimming or whatever have you. And you just bring those bodies in. Right. Because there's there's one there's a couple things that you have to realize is a you need bodies to create a team and mold it. And then B is that. You know, this is the the Joe Newton idea that he did so well is that if you get enough people, you never know who's going to thrive, right? And if you get enough people, your likelihood of people thriving goes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's contagious, right? And that's what you're trying to create when you're starting a program is this contagious, you know, infectious mindset. And a lot of times, though, like, we want quote unquote easy street where like there are early expressors of talent and we have early expressors of talent or ability in our ranks. And that's why people pay big money for, you know, these recruits that run real fast time trials in high school and whatever. Right. But again, 
I don't even know what that means anymore. Like you look at how many sub four minute Milo boy, high school boys happened in the United States last year. I think the most ever in one season and we're not really. And so what, right? Literally. So what? I mean, these kids aren't out there just crushing the competition in college. There's a lot going on and, you know, it's easy to get fooled by that early expression. Um, it's only when it's like, you know, kind of like, so, basically a supernova type, like a Jim Ryan type, an Alan Webb type, something like that, where you're like, okay, they are head and shoulders at a zenith at a next level that's never been there before. But these arbitrary markers of like, they ran sub four or they broke, you know, 15 in the 5k, it doesn't really translate in the long game because what happens is people are people. And if you get enough people together in the right culture and the right community, it, it is this infectious like uh, momentum that takes over. But that's that's the key when you to me is when you start building a program from scratch is like you have to offer a sense of like belonging, connection. And as the coach or the, the ringleader, you have to offer a, a rallying cry and a vision that everyone can get behind. And you have to come with a lot of energy every day. You've got to come with the energy, man, like to two like venti, you know, triple, quadruple, espresso, you know, Americanos every day. You got to come with the energy. Well, well, you know, I love that because here's here's what it is. Is often when we start a program, we look to the best of the best. In college, you look at, I don't know, Stanford or NAU or whoever, and you're like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to copy Mike Smith. And there's a lot of good. To, to come from that, but you have to realize where you started from or where you start from, right? When NAU got its quote unquote start, it was well before Mike Smith got there, right? And that culture starts to develop. Mike has developed it even more so, but that culture started to dev- develop, you know, way back in the day with the, um, gosh, now I'm blanking on his name, but former U- Louis- Louisville coach. Yeah, or, yep. Um, and then it, it just it just it just grew and grew and grew through the different variety of coaches. So you start to establish this. You know, if you're new to a program starting from scratch, you're not looking to say, hey, we're going to everyone's going to show up and we're going to run 10 miles every day and do this and this and this. You have to realize that you're starting at square one, which is creating a culture where it's fun to be there belonging and connection people feel feel like they are significant and then also have a direction so it's not hey we're just hanging out but like hey here's our goal here's our mission here's what we're trying to do it's the old again from the high school joe newton everybody has a nickname why does everybody have a nickname because that makes them feel like they belong and are significant and all of that good stuff and you have to create that before you can start to move towards, we'll call this super serious, you know, this is the way it's all, this is the way we do that. You have to get, you have to make it almost like the cool place to, to come. And the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, I remember at, at Houston again, there was a point early on where I, I turned to my assistant and I said, you know what, I want you to find like every every girl high school girl who'd run between like five thirty and six minutes in the mile. And normally people would be like, do you want, you're going to recruit that. And I was like, 
hell yeah, I'm going to recruit that. I mean, what we did is we came up with a list of every, you know, 530 to six minute girl in kind of the Houston area and then tried to find their their emails, social media, whatever it is. And we just sent out mass emails on like, hey, if you're interested in walking on, like we are the place. And still, we didn't get a ton from that. But I will tell you what happened is like we got girls who ended up being, you know, um, all conference or third at conference, actually one one of them. We got girls who, you know, just missed uh, being all all region and stuff. So <laughs> and not all of them. Right. Some came in and ran 540 and you know, ended running 530 or whatever, but you get these people, you get enough people who are like, Hey, I'm excited. I want to run like all this stuff. And you never know what they're going to express. And I think that that is your starting point. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's the, we have to fight the cult of the individual and you see that now, right. In recruiting in the NL our NIL landscape, right. Um, uh, in college coaching or the collegiate ranks, right? Where it's all about me and minds, me and minds. And it's like, that's, that's not the game, right? Uh, what I've, we've tried to do, like say with Mike Smith tapes and, you know, every time we've interviewed him is unpack the quote unquote, so-called extra dimension he has. And because it's not about training, everyone wants to go, Oh, NAU does 10 second treadmill, you know, incline sprints. That's the secret. It's like, no, it's not the secret. At all. <laughs> the reality is this, right? It's, you know, saying like, hey, you belong, you matter, you'll be seen and heard, you'll be a part of this group, you'll have amazing shared experiences, you'll create social bonds and connections. These are fundamental, intrinsic things we want to record. The whole like, hey, look at me at social media posting in or posing in posting pictures of a recruiting trip in this college's gear. Or like, what's his decision? What's her decision? This is my top five. These are my top three. No one gives a shit. Stop. What matters is if you're going to create a program saying, hey, look, the connections you'll have here, doing this hard stuff together, having these shared experiences are going to be so monumental and shaping you that it will last a lifetime. And you literally do. You take the rejects and the outcasts, right? Because those people who tried out for the basketball team or tried out for the soccer team and got cut, all tryouts are, are essentially like a, you know, feed of strength test to be able to say, okay, you get a spot on the roster, you get a, a spot, you know, in the car to go and have these share experiences. Everyone wants that. So that's why like so many good athletes, good runners come from those cuts because it's not about innate ability. Like, oh, I have this talent for running. It's really not that. Like you and I alone have developed athletes at every level who no one thought were any good, had any chance and became like, you know, world beaters. Right. And it's just the reality is fundamentally that you have to understand what you're selling and what you're offering. And it's not, I have better training, you're going to get results and speak to um, the individual's uh, narcissistic uh, impulses. It's really speaking about to, hey, you'll be a part of something that will change you forever. Good example of this is like, you know, all those guys at Portland State who I recruited, um, you know, and who are on the team when I inherited it, you know, in a really bare cupboard situation, it was just like, whoa, there's nothing going on here. 
uh, uh, one of the guys, he got married. And it's like all those guys came to that, that guy's wedding, like years later, years later, after I had left porn safe, they all graduated, they've all become young adults. It's awesome to see. But it's like they all showed up. And it was just, to me, it was a, a very endearing moment because I just saw them and just the social bonds they had fostered amongst each other with the program and then sustained afterwards. It's exactly what's the point. <laughs> that's the point of it all. It's not, did we run races? Did we run fast? Like that's something to aspire to for sure. That That's the rallying vision, but it's that social, long, enduring social connection, which I think the Joe Noons of the world, you know, the Mike Smiths of the world, you know, the Steve Magnuses of the world, the John Marcuses of the world that we foster that are actually the sustaining factor. Exactly. And I think that's where it's like, don't put the cart before, before the horse. You have to establish that foundation. So if you're start if you're starting from scratch, what you're doing is is often we think, oh, we're gonna come in, we're gonna shake things up, we're gonna have a high performance culture, whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. But the reality of what that truly means is establishing the culture that like you matter, you belong, like those connect these connections are important. And what inevitably happens is that stokes, you know, for many people that intrinsic motivation where it's like, this is fun. I like being a part of this team. I'm going to try hard because I enjoy this. And we know this, right? If you if you think back to when you got started in running, whether it's junior high, high school, whatever, like you didn't you didn't go for running because you're like, "Oh, this sport is so much fun." No, it hurts. It was painful. It yeah. kind of sucks. <laughs> But you you got in it probably, you know, one way or other because it was like, oh, man, this team is fun. Like being a part of this is awesome. And that's, you know, yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm having success here. But it's that team aspect that that, that kind of keeps keeps you around and keeps that fire, you know, stoked and, and motivated. And then the rest kind of takes care of itself because you're like oh, I'm part of something. I belong. This is a lot of fun showing up to practice and putting in this work, even though we're running lots of miles. Um, it's kind of cool to strive for something, you know, with now my best friends or what have you. And that's what develops it. And I remember that, you know, going back to high school is I came in on a, a high school team that had never, the boys team had never been to the state meet and like, you know, whatever, 30 years of his, its existence. In my sophomore year, we went to the state meet for the first first time as a team. And, you know, from that, the, the team just changed. And then, you know, they we became really good at state and went all the way, you know, years later, that continued and they got second at state and all that stuff. And that 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 shift occurred simply because it was, you know, in my mind, we were a bunch of guys who got along well together and we said, hey, let's train a lot more than we they normally had. Not because we were like, oh, we love training, but it's because like, hey, this is fun. This is a group we belong. Let's try and see what we can do here. And that's kind of the base foundation of what you need to establish when you're starting from scratch is don't obsess over the performance or the outcome or what have you. Like establish that team, that dynamic, that sense of connection, which then allows you to take those next steps. Yeah, it's that shared, there's a lot to be said for that shared diversity, right? 
Um, just a lot, a lot to be said for having that. And that's the beautiful thing about running, whether you're the number one woman or, you know, the number 45 woman on a large team, like everyone is hurting the same at the same moment, you know, late in the race. Like it's, it's the same level of discomfort, no matter how fast you're going. And so we collectively can all share that. And that's the beauty of it. Right. And then two in running, right. There's no one on the bench. Everyone's participating. Everyone's, um, out there giving it their all. So again, to me, I love cross country and track and field because everyone gets a chance to perform on stage. And as a coach, it's really important early on for us to highlight and call out and uh, elevate every single performance. Now, you may be like maybe superficial about it and go, oh, look, here's the result and outcome, time, place. But as a coach, the connection happens when you call out the effort or the intent or the desire that the person had. And that's why you celebrate the PRs for the back of the Packers, mid Packers, even from the Packers, right? Because they are graduation points in that person's development. And then collectively it puts everyone else on notice. That's like, Hey, if coach is esteeming this, this must matter. And that gets me to a really important thing is when you take over a program or start a program from base foundation, like ground zero from scratch, you have to be really focused on what's your why and why are you in existence? Like, what are you doing? And it has to be singular in terms of the messaging. There can be, you know, other things at play as well that are supportive, but that why you have to live it, breathe it and have it be infectious every single day. And so it can be whatever you want to be. If it's like, we're a high performance culture and all we give a shit about is results. Fine. Just stay consistent with that. And every day, let athletes, your athletes know this is important. This is important. This is important. That's one reason why I love Tony Holler and his feed the cats culture. It's not about like he has a secret to training speed, the X's and O's. The secret is this. He just makes a really big deal out of kids running fast and tracking their mile per hour, posts it, celebrates it, talking about it constantly posting about it constantly, elevating kids no matter where they are constantly. And that creates this uh, contagion about like, hey, this matters to coach. So this this matters to us. And then what happens? All his athletes run way fast. Like it's, it's not rocket science, right? The training is the simple part, right? That's plug and play. That's pretty, you know, pretty easy. Like once you've dialed that in, you – it allows you then to be ready to deal with the, the most unknown thing, which is the human interaction and the human variance on a day-to-day. Because what are you going to do when your number three cross-country runner in the middle of cross-country season comes in and says, hey, coach, I don't know if I want to do cross-country anymore because I want to be a YouTube influencer now. Like, you got to be ready to have that conversation and go, the reality is all that influencing or individualistic, narcissistic, um, promotion culture, it's actually a very, very lonely existence. It's superficial because it looks like you have all these followers or likes or whatever, but it's very, very lonely, right? Uh, and that's the, the hard reality of it versus being on a team is very, very intrinsically fulfilling. And you get all this, you know, there's a lot of biology and science behind it, right? You get the serotonin release, you get the dopamine release, you get the oxytocin release, all these really good things. And so really at the end of the day, I prefer starting a program from ground zero because you get, a, it's, it's, it's native soil, right? It's virgin soil. You get a lot of 
creative direction over where to go. But the flip side of it is you have to be really um, organized and succinct and also um, confident in what's your why and why is your why your why and then delivering on that why every single day. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, we talked about getting bodies and people, but then it is like that. Your why develops that philosophy that you're trying to communicate. And I think here is where it's really important to have <coughs> your words and actions align. And this is where I think it's important where you're starting from ground zero is that that authenticity of what you're trying to create. So don't try and copy someone else's program, how you think they run it. Like do it in your own style and own way. And I remember at Houston, like at the beginning, I was like, you know what? We don't have a lot of scholarship. We're just kind of this random collection of people. Like everyone else looks kind of a certain way when you show up to the cross country program. We're kind of a very diverse school and team. And we were just kind of our identity became like, hey, we're just this group of like misfits who are going to show up and surprise people. And we had, especially at the beginning, like 800 guys who were running 10K and cross country because we didn't have a lot of bodies and we didn't have a lot of you know talent. So like we relied on guys who would run the four by four in track to run 10K, you know, and like, well, how do you convince someone to do that? Well, you've got to create an identity that includes them that supports them, that isn't just like, oh, we're this distance running team and we're all run like 90 miles a week. Well, no, we had guys who were running like 35 miles a week running 10Ks, but they were important to have and buy in and not be like, oh, I'm an 800 guy. I can't run cross country, right? No, it was like the expectation from the get-go was like, hey, middle distance guys, you're going to run it too. We don't know how good you're going to be. Maybe it'll take a couple of years, but you could be really good. I mean, we had... We had um, one 800 guy get ninth at the conference cross-country meet, run 24 flat for, for 10K, and run 149 and, and split you know 47 lows on the 4x4. How? You know, he didn't do that his freshman year, but by his, you know, by the time he's a senior, like, he developed some pretty good endurance. And it's just like, okay, great. You can run cross-country really well. Let's Let's do this thing. But you've got to, you know, that was authentic to to me and the team that we had because I knew at a, you know, an inner city school, like we were going to have to, that was more sprint focused. We were going to have to make things work a lot differently than if I was, you know, at Colorado at altitude. That's just kind of the reality of the situation. So making your your kind of team culture, philosophy, identity authentic to not only who you are, but like what the team brings to it is incredibly important. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you called out that identity piece. Cause it's, it's really important, you know, that also too, as a coach, you do enough personal work to know what your identity is and what it isn't, because no matter what, as the leader of this, of a group, your DNA will be imprinted upon it. It won't, you know, be the sole shaping factor, but it will be a key influence. And then, that in turn will then offer identity or a sense of identity and self-concept to the young men and women or older men and women that you interact with. And that's, you know, the most important thing is being consistent in that because that builds consistency, builds trust. If you have large swings in identity or like say with your former employer or boss who 
one thing was a big priority one week, and then the next week it was completely 180, and then two weeks later it was a you know another, a 180 pivot from that. Those wild swings in like prioritizations or demeanor uh, when you show up to practice or at meets that creates this um, you know pattern of inconsistency, and that's people want consistent, right? Consistency offers us security, it offers us safety. And that's a really important thing to be cognizant of and aware of as a coach is your demeanor, behavior, and attitude every day at practice. If you're going to do it, do it. And just know like it's on repeat, it's routine, it's consistent. I mean, I remember when I came visit you one year at U of H and it was like, I was like, oh, I'll hang out with Steve, you know, at practice. And then I thought, oh, we'll just chat in his office after practice. Nope, wasn't happening. Athletes were just coming in, coming in, coming in, talking about life, talking about this, talking about that, right? Because they knew that's when Steve was available. So I was like, all right, can't hang out with him now because it's just like, you know, one after another, every five minutes, it seemed like another athlete would show up. So, and that reminded me of, same thing at Portland State. Like I kept office hours. I said, look, I will be here every day at this time in my little cramped closet, windowless office. <laughs> and sure enough, kids just started showing up between those hours, right? I mean, it wasn't like every moment, but it was just consistent. I was consistently there. And that's where a lot of connection building happened was in that, um, you know, away time from the track or the off time. And so as a high school coach, right? I'm very consistent when I show up to the track. Like I show up 15 minutes before practice. I set down all the wickets. I get, it doesn't matter, rain or shine, like I'm there. Kids know they have that time because they have about 30 minutes between when class gets out and practice starts. If you want to chat with coach, I'll be there for 15 minutes. And then no matter what, we're leaving the track at 5.30, period, end of story, right? 90 minutes is the longest we'll be there. And so it doesn't matter if we're like mid-cool down, mid-circuit. When the 5.30 alarm goes off, we're done for the day. Why? Because it gives everyone consistency. The parents know when they can count on picking their kids up. The kids know I'm only going to be at practice for this long. It's not like, oh, we got all this work to do. We got all this training to do. It's like by keeping that, you know, very uh, routinized schedule, that the, the maybe the, the, the small amount of work we don't get to in that day that we might have been on the training table, it pales in comparison to the basically global consistency of life and lifestyle that Mike Smith talks about a lot in the Mike Smith tapes. That's super important because if you're consistent in life, then you can be consistent in training and then you can be consistent in race day and then you can be dependable on race day. But the dependability starts first and foremost with the leader and that's the coach. You know what one of the, one of the biggest factors in workplace burnout is? Steven, tell me this because I know you have this other podcast with this other dude that's really good that I get jealous of sometimes with the guests you guys get. But sure, tell me since you're the guru here, my man. <laughs> here we go. Lack of role clarity. Ooh, yeah. Which, what is that? It's that consistency in expectations and role. Do you know what you're supposed to do when you're, sh you know, when you show up? Do you know where you're supposed to show up? Do you know, you know, what's what's the job or expectations? And in the workplace, if we have that, guess what? It decreases burnout. Well, it's the same thing in, in track, right? If we don't have clarity on who we are, when we're supposed to show up, what we're supposed to do, 
then, you know, things aren't gonna be good, right? Because the I, I gotta tell you, there's the human brain hates hates uncertainty. It 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 whenever we feel uncertain, guess what? We fill that gap somewhere, and sometimes we create like delusions to to fill that gap. So in in what you're what you're talking about there, and the consistency, I think is so important, and that also comes back to your identity, which is like, you know. If you are the kind of quiet, load, laid back, nonchalant person, then be that person. If you're the like loud, energetic, whatever, like be that person consistently. What you don't want to do is be like, oh, you know what? I saw Mark Wetmore or Jerry Schumacher or Mike Smith do this, so I'm going to do that. Well, guess what? They all have different personalities. And often, if you watch them in cross-country meets, like they do different things right? Or track meets, they do different things and yell, some yell, some just sit at the top of the stands. Some, you know, are enthusiastic. Some are just like, you know, off in the woods somewhere. I don't know what they're doing because you can't find them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, but the point is they know who they are and they are consistently who they are. Yeah. And that goes with the athletes that know what to expect, right? It's like why in an outburger is so good. It's just like the same thing, but you know what to expect. And it's the same quality, same delivery, same, same, same. Nothing wild and crazy or new, nothing to try out. It's just that paradigm and modeling is so good. I mean, again, you know, I have like my head coach and buddy uh, at the high school, he's a yeller at track meets. You can hear his voice across the track. He, to him, he's horsed. If he's not horsed after a track meet, he didn't do his job. The kids know that he's going to yell his lungs off for them, no matter the event when they're performing, and that that and they can come to expect it and they love it. For me, right, I'm more of a I'm not saying anything when you're racing. We're going to talk about everything, but we're going to have like a moment right before you go out and race during your warm up, where it's just you and me, and we like reaffirm what's going on, and you, you know, you know, I got your back 100%. I support you no matter what. I'm excited to see what you do. Like it's a pretty simple consistent template that I run through with them. And it's just these affirmations of support. And I'm there. You might not hear me during, but just letting them know I got your back. And then we'll debrief immediately afterwards, right? But it's just consistently showing up in that way, day in and day out, you know, maybe it's not what they, <laughs> they want or expect from a typical coach, but they can depend on it. And that dependability with programs is so, so key. And that's really like the backbone of a program in my it, mind. It, it is. And I'm going to give an example to illustrate this that I hope gets this across for listeners is if you're the yeller type coach at cross country meets where you're excited, you know, the runner comes by and yell and you're just like, come on, Jimmy, Johnny, Susie, whatever. Like you just go nuts. If you've ever not yelled, what what how does the athlete take it yeah you know this the athlete looks at you doesn't get the the response and in their head they kind of freak out they're like oh man i must be doing bad because coach didn't like yell at me right because it's different right that you've set the expectation and then you've taken it away so they have that uncertainty that like oh crap something must be wrong that's why the consistency is really important. On the flip side, if you're not a yeller coach and an athlete runs by and you just give a clap or say a word or what have you, like they don't freak out because they're like, yep, oh, that's coach. Like 
you know, that's this is this is how they function. This is fine. It's like, you know, the same lack of yelling or screaming or whatever, but interpreted in two different ways based on the expectation that you have established as a coach. And I think that's where it's so important is like establish that expectation, you know, and I remember going through this actually, John, I remember being, you know, there was an athlete who was ready to roll. I thought they were going to run well. You know, I like cheering for my athletes. It was on the track and they were just falling apart. And I knew it was like, they were just, you know, and part of me was like, oh, I just want to walk. You know, you get that instinct. You're like, I just want to walk off, you know, just walk away. And in my head, I'm like, I can't walk away because if I do, like this athlete's going to know I'm just like so pissed at, you know, in this situation, I got to at least like be there yelling something to like try and get them back on track. And actually one situation with this occurred an athlete went from, you know, 12th in the 5K at conference to actually third and like snapped out of it. And then afterwards was like, I'm glad, you know, you and then and actually Brian Barraza was helping me in, during his grad year. He's like, you guys stuck around and cheered because about halfway through, you know, I realized I should stop feeling sorry for myself <laughs> and like snap out of this. And then I was capable of more. Now, that doesn't always happen. But like if I walked away and was like, forget this, this athlete's 12th, they should be, I expect her to be, you know, sixth or seventh, like she's not trying, then that never would have happened, right? So it's that consistency of showing up and being who you are that like gives athletes that clarity that is so important and vital. Yeah, ultimately, like we're in the relation game, right? I remember telling recruits and recruits' parents when I was uh, working in the college scene, like, look, I'm going to be the adult they interact with the most. I'm basically foster dad, you know, for the four years they're at this university or however long, or two years at this community college. Why? You're going to see me every day. You're not going to see a professor every day. You're not going to see, you know, your counselor every day. You're going to see me every day. And lo and behold, like, because they saw me every day, they came to trust and all, and it's like LeBron James, right? Like I learned this lesson a long time ago. Just show up. Like you don't have to be like perfect. You don't have to be prepared. You might get an F that day in class, but like an F is better than an absence. And if you're absent, that's the thing that is the worst, right? Because people call that flaws in communication um, or like you're not communicative enough if you're absent. And it's really hard, like say if you're a remote coach and like the remote coaching I have done, I try to you know, tell people up front, like, here's how I operate. Email, check it very infrequently. Like even the training, you know, server we use, check it like once or twice, you know, a week. Um, but more than anything, the, the things that anchor my practice are text me if things go wrong. Text is always on the table. Text, 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 text. And then two, I learned this when I was a, uh, you know, regional marketing manager for a Rangshu company. Uh, way back in the day is just have a standard one-on-one. -on -one. It can be weekly, bi-weekly, every three weeks, but like come hell or high water, there's a standing 30-minute call, 50-minute call, whatever it needs to be, where it's like you're going to, you know it, you have that opportunity to call and check in and get my undivided attention. And the thing that saved me from it, right, when I was in marketing and in, a, in managing like all these uh, remote uh, subordinates was, yeah, that was like, Basically, two thirds of my work week, so 30 hours, you know, 25 hours a week 
was just spent talking to people <laughs> and like call here, call here, call my boss. But it was all regular standing one-on-one -on -one appointments. And having that weekly one-on-one -on -one is really important. And so when also too, you're shaping a culture and trying to shape people who might be a little bit more reticent to that, creating that space if you're a college coach or even if you're a high school coach with those key influencers and saying, hey, look, I just want to just connect with you. Or, hey, we, you know, there's an opportunity maybe every twice a week we have a standing appointment and we can shift it based on, you know, different things, but we just know it's consistently on the books. Um, you know, things happen, things come up, but we're going to talk that week. Knowing that you have that moment for that undivided attention with the quote unquote leader or coach, again, another highly stabilizing thing for a person because they just know hell or high water we're going to show up and we're going to, you know, I'm going to get this attention because ultimately, right. We are all so children at heart. We want attention from people we esteem. So like, you know, whether it's our spouses, our friends, you know, our own parents still our you know, our siblings or family members. Like if you don't get that, then again, because that relational components lacking, the trust component goes down, the trust component goes down then it's not as significant what you're doing. You're a little half-hearted. You're going to look to other sources to provide that stability if you're not getting it. it. Exactly. I think that's so important. And it is important to set that stage of expectations. I would always tell the athletes, again, here's where I show up. I'm not the best at responding to text or this email. Is known. This is known. <laughs> this is known. Everybody knows this. I'm not. I know. Uh, I text Steve, like, fun aside, I'll like, text Steve for like, oh, I need to talk to him, I need to talk to him, I need to talk to him. A week will go by, no response. But like, I'm like, is Steve mad you? I go, nope, Steve's just being Steve. <laughs> this is this is how it works. And yeah, it's even it, it's even worse, been worse the last couple of weeks because uh, Hillary and I are buying a car, um, which is, this is a total aside, but I gave up going to, you know, dealerships and talking to people. And instead, I'm negotiating everything over email and text so that I don't have to talk to anybody. So yep. now I have like 50 billion car people all texting me. Which oh, yeah. Is, they want your money, man. It's Dude, the worst. Yeah, all going on. Buying a car, having a kid. Jeez, yeah, man. I know. We're, my, old, my old car is falling apart. I mean, it was from way back in the pre-Oregon days. So Whoa. it's... It's it's been across the country and back. Um, um, anyways, but you gotta tell them where you show up. So I tell them like, hey, guess what? You know, if you call me, I'll 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 answer or get back to you. And you know what we did? I said, as John alluded to earlier, I was like, I'm in my office at these times after practice. Like, show up. We can talk about anything you want. Mm -hmm. And then what I also had is like we would split people up into small groups of like four or five people. And every week we'd have a small group meeting. And if you couldn't show up, that's all right. Oh, I like that. But like, <laughs> if you could, like I was going to be in my office for those 30 minutes talking specific, nothing else to do is talking to those three, four or five people. Sometimes with a program, sometimes with like, let's just shoot the shit and talk about, about stuff. But it was my way of saying, Hey, if, if for whatever reason you can't get, hold of me here here or here or at practice it seems like you know you don't want to intervene or talk to too much there's always a space to communicate and and, and, and the, the more steve those little small meeting cohorts like how did you uh determine who who would attend was it based off class schedule or personality types or like yeah what was what was the mix so 
Yeah, so we started with class schedules. So at the beginning of every semester, what I would do is I would have everybody, I had all these 30-minute blocks on, you know, I think they were Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays generally. Um, <laughs> but 30-minute blocks from after practice into the afternoon. And I'd have everyone be like, please check off every single box that, you know, you could you can make relatively consistently based on class schedule. So then I had all that data. And then I would go through and I would group people based on personality types and also connections. And my, my, my goal was this. So if we had four people in there, I wanted at least everybody in that group to have one other person in there that they felt like secure and comfortable with, like really secure and comfortable with. It, you know, they didn't have to be best friends, but you knew on the team, like, hey, these people can... They'll hang out, they'll talk, whatever. They feel comfortable around that. And then I wanted to mix, based on that, if I got one person who other people, I tried to combine like groups where they didn't interact much. So it was like a little bit of comfort and security and then a little bit of like, hey, I'm going to expand your perspective a little bit. And that's why if you looked at, so we did this combined men and women's team. So often what happened is we had like two girls and two guys in there or whatever have you. So that we had like, oh, you know, you've got friends and you've got like these people over here who you don't interact with as much. And I love that dynamic because <laughs> I saw my role as like the facilitator where I was like, you know, I'll shape and guide these things. But it was their conversation we were going to have. But it allowed like people to get to know one another outside of, and then we change every semester, so you get you would find new people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I loved it. I mean, it was probably one of the best things that that we implemented small groups, and the kids loved it too because I remember, you know, during the COVID year, which was my last year, the one complaint because we were only practicing once we finally got back to practice, we were only practicing maybe three days a week because at that point there's no vaccine. You were like, if anybody gets, you know, COVID and we're around like everybody they've been around is out for two weeks. So to preserve what we did is we were like essentially two hard workouts and long run is when we're going to meet. And then I want you to run the rest in your small little group because even the running was counted as like our, if you were around them, right? You And you got it, you were out. So we were trying to stay kind of segmented. <laughs> and and the number one complaint during that is we haven't had small groups. Oh, so wow. we, st we started doing that a little bit online. It wasn't as good, but it was still something online on Zoom to kind of fill that gap. What, you know, what spurred the concept of these small groups? Because, like, I mean, this is brilliant, this kind of micro team bonding, right? Like this level of intimacy. It's you know, oftentimes, right, we view like we're a new big team bonding activity. Everyone go around and just say your favorite, you know, food and blah, blah, blah. And it's like that doesn't do shit. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, again, it took me years to, to do this. Um, but and then we did it for, gosh, I don't know, four, five years, something like that. But where it came out of was our cross-country camp. So at the beginning of the year, we'd always have cross-country camp and we'd always have those big team bondings. But one of the things that we started to do one year, and kids love cross-country camp, is we'd go, you know, I stole this actually from, uh, well, my now wife, Hillary, is if you look at how they teach kids in elementary school, it's essentially 
go big, which is like explain everything, right, to the whole class. Then she demonstrates. And then they go into like small groups where they like or one on one where they work it out. So you go from like big to small. <laughs> and the same as reading, right? We teach the reading and then they go into like she works in groups of like three or four and cycles people from individual reading to these groups and cycles throughout until they've done their reading block or what have you. So I took this idea in our camps and I said, you know what, we're going to talk about something, you know, let's say, I don't know, pre-race anxiety. I'm going to talk for like, you know, 10 minutes, introduce it, talk about stuff. And then I'm just going to split you guys up into, you know, small groups of like four or five people. Um, and you guys just talk about it, discuss it for 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll come back as the group and talk about it. And those 15, 20 minute discussions were often the most productive thing that they did because in large groups, not everyone has a voice. So the people who like to talk, who like to be vocal, like they end up talking about whatever or always raising their hand or always contributing and others don't. But when you, you split it up, you get everybody has a chance to have a voice and people don't dominate and can contribute. So that's where it came from. After that, I was like, you know what? We need to do this during the, the year. And instead of, again, we'd often have like big team meetings after practice or before practice. Instead, I was like, screw this. We're just going to have weekly groups of like four or five people. And just like, again, it was 30 minute blocks and just kind of, you know, go with it. And it, it worked out really well. God. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, I'm glad you brought up that that term finding your voice, because that's really like a lot of what self-identity and self-concept building is about, is especially with young men and women, but also too, even with adults, it's giving them a sense of agency where they can cultivate, develop and find their voice. Because a lot of times, you know, that voice is wedded to who we are. And if you don't get opportunity in a safe space to practice it, to like suss it out, you know, I, I always call it like trying on different hats you're never really going to be able to fully develop that. And you're going to have arrested development in some way, shape or form. And that's, you know, we, it's funny when you talked about small to big, I thought, oh, well, that's what we do in training, right? Like workout groups, here's the workout for the day in general. Okay, we're going to group this group, group this group, group this group based on like ability or, you know, strength or, you know, speed or what have you, right? And so it's like, when we go train, we do that. But yet we as coaches, sometimes I think, forget the import of the relational component and then just think, all right, all these small discussions will happen on these easy training runs. And that's where people will, you know, get, get to know each other, but it, it's tough because that's predicated based off ability, right? So you end up cloistering with just the same people, every training run or every workout, and it gets stagnant versus like these small groups. Now that's a, a diversifying thing and it actually creates bigger, broader, and tighter social um, connections and bonds, which is huge. I mean, it, it, exactly. And that's, that's where I think it, 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 what it's all about is how do we create the space? And the other thing I'll say as well is that I think is really important is whether high school kids or college kids, often they're treated as kids where their voice doesn't matter and no one listens to them. They're taught that adults don't listen. So I remember one small group discussion we had was on like, you know, uh, gun violence. And like, I wasn't trying to get political, but they wanted to talk about it. It was one after one of the school shootings. I'm like, sure, we can talk about it. 
and because we're in Texas, like we had a diversity of groups, but it was one of the best conversations because I'm like, you know, these kids aren't worried about saying the wrong thing in front of the wrong adult or like whatever, or like offending someone. They're just having like a genuine, honest discussion and like respecting others because like we, we've done the work. And it was so cool because, and I remember afterwards being like, we couldn't have, like, I can't have this conversation anywhere else in the world, probably, without, like, someone yelling and screaming. So, like, thanks for that. And that, again, creates that connection, not because we're all the same, but because you realize, like, oh, like, this person might have a different opinion, but, like, you know, I value that and understand it now. And, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, these safe spaces where judgment is not passed. They're very rare in our society, especially for young men and women in adolescence, right? Because you're basically always being graded. You're always being judged. And so you get told, as you said, your voice doesn't matter. What matters is you regurgitate what I told you to get the grade, to get a, a, a pass or to be judged you know, um, favorably. But in giving people that space to explore their voice, and that exploration process and sampling process is really important because if you don't have that opportunity to create and explore, and there will be hiccups, there'll be mess ups, there'll be wrong turns for sure. If it's always I have to have this very manicured graded product and judge in product that we judge out in the, 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 the world um, presented, that creates a lot of anxiety, right? It's like why we know and they're seeing now these um, research studies that shows uh, young adolescents, um, prepubescent and pubescent boys and girls, ages 12 to like 16, who are habitual users of social media on their phone versus those who are not, physically their neural chemistry and neural hardwiring is changed for the rest of, you know, as they age. Like we now have enough data and enough longitudinal data on this young phenomenon to be like, oh, it is a drug and it's not a good drug, right? Because again, it is affirming this, judgment that you need all the time. I'll never forget, you know, when I finally personally, you know, shedded this, when I stopped giving a total rat's ass about how many followers I had on Twitter, what responses were, it was so freeing and so liberating that I could just say, tweet things I wanted to tweet. And as we know, I just tweet things I want to tweet. And sometimes it pisses a lot of people off, but so what? It's my Twitter, (laughs) right? But everyone's like, that's this is my orientation or worldview or I'm exploring a thought or exploring a concept. And then I put it out there to see what the reaction is. Like nine times out of 10, those ones that um, can be have a high degree of friction. I never even assumed it. Right. And it's not like you're trying to like have a hot take or, you know, um, uh, basically stir the hornet's nest. What it is, is like you we have to give everyone the opportunity to explore and develop their voice or self-concepts and also that comes with failure and pitfalls and dead ends and we don't allow for that anymore unfortunately in kind of like the uh digital spaces we created we do allow for that in the clubhouse you know people can suss things out and i you know personally have gone wrong you know wrong turns and wrong routes or been corrected and it's awesome because it's like it's from an aligned group of people who we're all here to help each other but those spaces are so vital and so important. I cannot express how awesome it is to hear that you created that. And I'm probably that's the biggest takeaway uh, of your time at UH was not all the like school records or you know people you know that ran fast under your tutelage. 
it was that, per, you know, basically like fundamental personal development they had, which is just, you know, uh, second to none. Kudos to that, Steve. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And that maybe, you know, summarizes the point of this entire podcast. If you're starting from the ground up is like focus <laughs> on that personal development and how you create those spaces where people can be who they are, feel like they belong. And if you do that, Again, it, you know, I know it sounds soft and wishy-washy, but I'm going to go, I've, we've mentioned him many times, but go back to Joe Newton. Why was he successful for so long? Yeah, we talk about the training and how hard they worked, but you don't get a bunch of high school kids to work that hard, you know, by scolding them or like, you know, trying to bribe them or whatever, using exercise as punishment. You know, the way he did it is pretty simple. He created an environment where it was cool to show up People felt like they belonged. They had a, a voice and a, you know, Joe Newton, this Titan knew who they were and talked to them every day as they checked in. Right. Yeah. It's so key. I think, you know, a lot of times we look at that people are like, Oh, how these high school kids do in college, they got all burnt out on training. And it's like, we often take the superficial route and just look at the X's and O's and training and go, it's a training problem. But did when these young men and women who are in these highly successful high school programs, but also highly inclusive, highly supportive high school programs, when they went to college, was it the same environment? Right. And that's where like we don't do a really good job of having like an environmental scan of saying like, well, they came from this place and they went to that place. And it can be a really corrosive experience um, to the um, next uh, phase in their development, you know, like uh, say like an Andrew Gerard who or Gerard from NAU, who people for, often forget, who was really fast, one of Mike's first fast guys, went to uh, like Oregon Track Club environment, and it's not a knock on like Roland or any of those people, but it was like he went from Mike Smith's world and the inclusion that he created to the highly independent, highly you know. Um, uh, end of one environment that was OTC, where it was just viewed as more of a business transaction. And that's just how, uh, you know, Roland ran it. And it worked successfully for a lot of athletes, but it didn't work for Terard. It wasn't like he was worse as an athlete or the training sucked. Like Roland has brilliant workouts. Amazing. I mean, I, I took the concept of skills and drills from Roland. Like it's phenomenal, but it just wasn't the right, um, you know, uh, pivot or step for that athlete who was used to a different type of environment. And we often forget how important that environment is in someone's development and consistency and ability to have a, basically a platform from which to perform. And we just think it's just training, it's just training, it's just training. And that's, I tell people all, all the time, like you do not understand the brilliance of Mike Smith as a college coach until you go watch Mike Smith coach. <laughs> and as someone who's watched Finn Nana coach, again, brilliant in how he delivers. We're talking about role excellence and role clarity, which if people want to look more into that, it's Frank Dick um, on his winning and winning matter books from the 80s talks a lot about role excellence and role clarity. And, you know, reminded me of like E40, uh, you know, he talks about player position. And it's not like a stay in your lane, like demissive thing, but like if you know your position, you play it like Jerry Rice did amazing wide receiver. He was not a quarterback, but he was the best wide receiver he could possibly be. It's the same situation here. It's like when you watch how people deliver uh, their position or deliver their role, 
It's the delivery that doesn't get translated in the textbooks, like watching how Rob Connor operates or, you know, or how Jerry operates or in person on a day to day, just at observation, right? That shaped me with my mentors um, and I could pick and choose how they did it. It's the environment they create. And again, the environment's not for everyone. I'll use Alan Bishop as an example at U of H. You know, he talks, we talk a lot and he often talks about when he's in the recruiting process, which they are now for, you know, U of H basketball, which ranked at the time of this recording, number one in the nation, um, you know, phenomenal. It's not that like, you know, these athletes are not good basketball players. He goes, it's just not the right fit. You know, you're a size 14 foot. This program's a size 12 and a half shoe. It's close, but it's just not right. No harm, no foul. It's, it's, and we often make a big deal about, uh, you know, different types of programs not being the right fit for an athlete. But sometimes you got to try it out to see if it actually is or isn't the right fit. And we're talking maybe more collegiately or post-collegiately. But that's what we're trying to find is that synergy and that fit. And as a coach, that's why we go back to know your why, know who your identity is, know what you're about, because then you'll find people who fit, right? Like at the high school level, my messaging is very simple. My why is fast is fun. Anyone can run fast and we're going to train to run fast. And we do a lot of wickets, a lot of sprints, a lot of flux training. There's zero long runs in my high school program for the track season. Zero. We do not run over 60 minutes. There's always at least one or two days off on the weekend. We don't meet on a weekend. It's it's not because of this or that. It's like my program, these are highly academically inclined kids. They got a lot going on. I can't gobble up all their t- free time with long runs or weekend practices or what have you. So they're quick, concise, we're in, we're out. It fits with my training paradigm for that age group. You know, we do a lot of things, but they know that our strength is speed. So on race day, I always say, trust your strength and your strength is speed. You will not be out kicked. You will be the one out kicking. And always happens because I just remind them, think of that, the thousands and thousands of wickets we've ran in practice. Think of the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, 100 meter or, uh, you know, fast sprint reps we've done. Think of all this stuff. And so when push comes to shove at the end of the race, because that trust and reinforcement's there based on reality, they will dig a little deeper and they'll make it happen because like that's quote unquote what we do. And I'll leave with this. Like a lot of people look to like, oh, what's the secret training of the Ethiopians and Kenyans or what have you? Why are the East Africans so dominant? After the World uh, Track and Field Championships in 2022, the Ethiopian contingent that medaled, so all their medalists, got basically Rolls-Royce cars, each of them, parade down the nation's capital, Adidas Adaba. When was the last time our nation's medalists in track and field each got their own Rolls-Royce to be carted around in and paraded down United, you know, the United States Capitol, Washington, DC, and had an outpouring of people to support them. Never. <laughs> but it sends a big message, right? It sends a message that this is significant, this accomplishment matters. It makes that person who did it feel like they're seen and heard and valued. But it also sends a message to everyone else watching, that young boy and girl, that next Ethiopian champion, like, oh, I this, this is something to aspire to. People make a big deal out of this. This is really important. You better believe coming down the last straightaway, coming down the last lap of a distance event, 
there's a little extra oomph in those Ethiopians because socially in their environment, it matters a lot to them versus say Americans who like, it's just more about me or my bonus or, you know, my um, raising my base salary or whatever. And no one's going to notice or care really besides like a couple like internet message boards or, or, you know, very niche uh, websites. It's a much different calculus happening down that home straightaway at the world champs for an Ethiopian versus an American. And that is solely due to the environment. There you go. There you go. That's it. So you know what? John mentioned it. You want to up your game, sign up for the scholar program, check out the clubhouse. It gives missing you. It's it'll only get better. I mean, that's right. 500 people and it's just getting better. Like every time I log on, it's like, Oh, there's 40 people just hanging out, like digesting all the content, adding, adding to you know, the conversation. And it's like, this is awesome. There you go. So check it out. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Come back every, every Monday morning. They come out. So appreciate you guys listening, you guys and gals. And until next time, next time, everybody, keep on coaching. <laughs>